Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. I want to invite you to be seated this morning, church family. To, uh, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and be turning to Luke. Uh, I'm going to get my verses mixed up, but Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. Um, as we're getting started today, I just want to say a brief word of thank you to uh, anyone who has prayed for me personally over the last three weeks or so. I had a procedure done on my sinuses about three weeks ago and still got some healing going on from that. This is actually my first Sunday back since the surgery, so uh, I'm grateful to be able to be here with you today. But that also comes with a bit of a caveat, and I don't mean to gross you out this morning, but i am still got some healing going on. It's on the inside because that's where the surgery happened. I can't see it. Uh, and so over the last week or so, I've been kind of struggling with some nosebleed issues. Now, again, I don't want to gross you out, but we have a plan B in place if I catch a nosebleed in the middle of preaching today, okay? I'm not going to stand in front of you and just be gross, okay? Uh, but we do have a plan B in place. Um, I don't know. That's probably really unexpected. You didn't expect to come to church and maybe possibly see somebody bleed on stage today, did you? No? Anybody? Anybody want to see that happen? You sick people. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Micah chapter 6 is where we're going to start today. In my years in student ministry, when I worked with students, after a student would come to Christ, there's, uh, it really, it wasn't just students, but I, I observed it in students. Uh, but over my years in ministry, as I've seen people place their faith in Christ, they've had a genuine encounter with Jesus that has caused them to essentially turn over the driver's seat of their life, essentially, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, I heard this question asked over and over after a person made that decision. They would say, what, is, what does God want me to do? I mean, what, what, what is pleasing to him or what does God require? And so uh, today what I want to do is go to the book of Micah and simply answer that question, what does God require? Uh, as you read through these verses, as we read through them together today, they may be familiar to you. That's okay. It's good for us to be reminded of the things that we think we already know. Uh, because that, God will use those opportunities just to stretch us uh, more and more. And, and honestly, the answer really is a balance today. It, you ha- we have to strike a balance between understanding God's grace over on this side, where God's grace says that we can do nothing to earn God's favor. Uh, and, and we're a church that believes that. But to the other extreme is the person that, say, I'm gonna, that says, I'm going to work and I'm going to do everything I can and I'm going to uh, live my life so religiously that God will see that and just be amazed and blessed and that's really not how God works. And so I would say to you this morning, church family, that, that, that the answer is somewhere in the middle. We have to be aware of God's grace, but we also have to be aware that there are certain characteristics that embody the life of God's people, certain things that God's people do, so to speak, if you want to think of it like that, certain characteristics that that just that's that's what happens when God's people are around and I think those are answered today uh, here in these verses in Micah chapter 6 so our goal today is really to strike that balance God the Father communicated this standard of holiness before Jesus arrived on the earth through the prophet Micah and many many others 
And then Jesus, when he came to earth, he reemphasized what God told Israel through the prophet Micah. Now, I know that's kind of confusing, but essentially it says that God said the same thing in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're going to look in both places uh, today. Uh, so join me, please. Uh, Micah chapter 6. Did you find it? It's a little book. It's kind of hard to find, but it's okay if you use the index, I promise. Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead my case before the mountains. Let the, hill, excuse me, let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. Gilgal was the place where they entered into the promised land after many years of struggle and toil and trial. Remember that journey from Shittim to Gilgal so that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8 He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We're going to spend most of our time focusing on that last verse 8 because in that I see a real simple formula for answering the question, what does God require? In fact, it starts with the question, what does the Lord require? And then it gives us the answer. I don't know about you, but I like simple things, and this is simple. The hard part is applying it once we leave here. So let's, let's dig in and study God's Word. I see three things in this one verse that God clearly says to His people These are what I require. This is what I expect. This is what pleases me. This is what I want you to do. And the first one is simply to do what is right. Now, in our translation this morning, I'm reading from the NIV, but in our translation, the one I'm reading from, it says to act justly. But you can reword that several different ways. You can say, God God wants me to act justly, and that would be correct. But you can also say that the Lord wants us to do what is right. Can you imagine how revolutionary it would be in the church if we as a collective body in the church that spread to the ends of the earth would just get on board with this one thing in all aspects of life? If we committed as a people to just say, God, I'm going to do what is right and I'm going to accept your standard of what is right no matter what what anyone else says, that would be revolutionary. The the perception that we have as the people of God in the world in which he's planted us would be changed overnight just if we decided and committed to say, Father, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what's right. I, I would say this to you this morning, church family. A living faith in Jesus Christ always leads a man to become obsessed with what is right because he knows that that's God's will. If you follow Christ, then you and I, we must be obsessed with doing what is right. And we need to understand that that's what pleases God. 
So when is it hard to do what's right? Well, there's lots of times when it's hard to do what's right, but in my own life, uh, how about this? When I'm by myself, when I'm alone, or when, uh, uh, when there's no one looking. It's hard to do what's right when no one is looking because for a lot of reasons. Well, I mean, there's no one there to pat you on the back and say, good job, you did what was right. Um, when I'm by myself, my desires, my dreams, my ambitions, they tend to rise to the top and there's no one around because I'm by myself to say, hey, that may be your dream, but it doesn't sound like God's dream. That doesn't sound like God's will based on what I see in scripture. When I'm by myself, it's, it's hard to do what is right. And I, I believe if we were honest today, we could probably all say that to an extent. What about when there's no reward? Uh, we will live in a society that gives out trophies for everything, right? Have you ever been to a Little League like trophy ceremony? Every kid gets a trophy. Uh, and that's not bad, but that's kind of permeated our thinking uh, to the point where we, we sometimes are unwilling to do what is right because there's no reward. That's not right. That's not right. What about when you might take a loss, be it a, a financial investment or a, a time investment in a person? Uh, and, and you just realize, I'm going to do this, and there's no way that this person can pay me back. It's hard. It's hard because there's a, a, even a, a brief sense of grief that happens when you let go of that time and give it to another person, or you let go of that dollar bill and donate it to a cause or to a person. It, it, it was yours, and now you're giving it away. You know, I'm using yours in quotes. It really wasn't yours, but you understand what I'm saying? When, there, when you might take a loss, it's hard. What about when the recipient seems unworthy? Uh, number one excuse for why people don't help the poor, because they think that whatever you give, they're going to go spend on something they don't need. When the recipient seems unworthy, it's hard. It's hard to do what's right. But I would say to you this morning, church family, Scripture clearly teaches us that God expects us to act justly, to do what is right in all circumstances. He has a will and a way for each person and each moment in time. And when we commit to do what's right, literally what we're doing is committing to pursuing God's will in each person's life and each moment in time that God has created. That pleases him. That pleases him. I want to invite you this morning, if you have your copy of Scripture, to flip over to Luke 14. Uh, we're going to, I told you we'd start in Old Testament. We're going to flip New Testament and really see how uh, the two Testaments agree on this and speak to us today. Uh, but Luke 14, we're going to look at a, a passage of Scripture, maybe the first 14 verses, cut up into a couple different sections. Um, so that we can see that Jesus was also concerned. He, he, he taught us. Even though the book of Micah isn't the words of Jesus, it's still the words of Jesus. And then we get to the New Testament, and here's the words of Jesus that say the same thing that Micah said. So I want to I prop this up this morning so that we all can understand that, that doing what is right pleases God. So look in, in uh, Luke 14. We're going to start in verse 1 and just read maybe four verses. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts of the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking a hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. And then he asked them, If, you have, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And again, they had nothing to say. 
There's an encounter that happens at this party that Jesus is attending where there's a sick man present. And on the books, there was a law in the day. The Sabbath day was to be kept holy. It was, it was a legalistic view on the, the Ten Commandment. And so they literally said no work on the Sabbath. And they had just pages of rules that qualified as work. And so here's Jesus in the midst of this group, and he sees a sick man who uh, could use literally a touch, a healing, and he has the power to do that, but he recognizes that some in the room might perceive that as breaking the law. And so he appeals to them and says, what's right in this situation? What's right? Does this man stay sick and I do nothing? Or do I do something, do I work on the Sabbath and heal this man? They didn't have anything to say. The Pharisees had nothing to say. You know why? Because they weren't concerned with doing what is right. They, they weren't concerned with that. They were concerned with being seen. They were concerned with having authority and, and power and lording it over the people that would submit to them. No wonder Jesus and the Pharisees clashed so often. I want to take a minute just based off of these verses from Luke 14 and go a little bit further because sometimes when we get in the mindset of thinking about doing what is right, it sounds like, well, I need to make the right decision. Or I, it all sounds very personal, um, but I want to take justice or I want to take this, this idea of doing what's right to the next level um, outside of ourself. Uh, many translations of this scripture from Micah chapter 6 use the word justice instead of justly or right. Uh, and so there's this idea communicated uh, to us through the word justice that it, God wants you and I to make right decisions, decisions that honor him. But he also wants us to press into uh, the, the, the realities, the situations that we find ourselves in in this life. He wants us to be an instrument of justice that presses uh, his right standard into situations where people would be marginalized. So think in terms of the poor. The, to think in terms of the slave, the sick, the elderly, the refugee, the, the, the people types in our society that society would say they are no longer important. God would say, do what is right concerning those type of people. Do you remember in the New Testament? Um, that, that was the whole reason why uh, they, they elected deacons to some of the early churches. You had the pastors that would teach, but there were people that were not being cared for. And they said, this is not right. We need to care for the people who cannot be cared for. We need to act justly according to them. And so sometimes that looks different than just making a right decision. Sure, you and I, we need to make right decisions. If you're, if you're married and you have a spouse, then you need to make right decisions together for the, for the good of your family, for the glory of God. You need to do that. But it's not just about the decisions that you need to make within your family unit. Justice is bigger than that. Doing what is right is bigger than that. So I would say to you this morning, church family, if you can do something to alleviate the plight of the poor, you should do it, no questions asked. That pleases God. If you can free the slave, you should do it because it pleases God, no matter the risk. If you can show hospitality to the refugee, the man without a, a home country, you should do it no matter the perception of your neighbor. This pleases God. If you can show grace to the elderly by carving out time to hear stories from generations gone by, you should do it. You should do it. 
It's an act of grace, and it pleases God. This is one of the primary functions of this body that we participate in called the church. It's to pursue and to do what is right. And if you look back in the verses in Micah where we started, Israel missed that. They thought that their relationship with God was made complete by rituals and religion. And meanwhile, their hearts stayed hardened. They didn't recognize the blessings of God in their life. They didn't recognize uh, how he had provided for them and how he had freed them and how he had saved them. Maybe there were moments where they realized it, but as a whole, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. So I, I want to say to you clearly this morning, church family, it pleases God when we act justly, when we do what is right. And, and before we move on, I want to say this. Um, sometimes when we think about this, this uh, idea of right and wrong, we think about it in terms of a scale. We, we know. I mean, you don't have to be around church people very long to, to know that we believe that God's standard is holiness, it's perfection, and we can't get there. But there sometimes is this humanistic thought that comes in where we think that God should lower his standard to allow us to be more acceptable. And that's just not the case. God's standard remains where it is as a picture to us for something to ascend to, to achieve. Not so that God will love us more, but so that we can be made into the image of Jesus Christ. Does does that make sense? Do you follow that? Elevate your standard of right to God's standard. Don't expect God to lower his to yours. Doesn't work that way. Let's move on. What does God desire? He desires that we do what is right. But secondly, he also desires that we love mercy. Love mercy. We love many things in this life, but sometimes from my seat in the church, as a church leader, it seems that there are many more who love vengeance than love mercy. So let me see if I can illustrate this for you, okay? You're on the freeway. And you're just minding your own business in your minivan or whatever you drive. And, you know, you're just doing your thing and everything's good. And you see in the rearview mirror a car that's kind of weaving in and out of traffic. And you can tell they're accelerating. They're coming fast. They're coming up on you. And you're in a lane and there's another lane here. And there's a gap between you and the car. But it's not big enough for another car. But here comes this guy. This guy in a red Corvette or something. I don't know. Red Corvettes are great. Sounds like a good uh, thing to put in the story. Uh, he, he comes and he, whoa, and cuts you off right in the middle. He fits that Corvette in so expertly. But what happens? In the moment, you flash from like terror to anger to uh, just all these other probably ungodly things that come up like in a flash, right? But this guy, you know, what are you going to do? Road rage will get you arrested, will get you in trouble, so you let it go. And then 10 miles down the road, you see this red Corvette, and it's parked on the side of the road, and there's a police officer behind him. Does anybody think, oh, man, that poor guy? (laughs) Do you? No. What do you think? Ha ha, sucker, you got busted, right? (laughs) You feel vindicated in the moment. You feel like uh, God has served justice to you, and you got to see it, and it's, it's this glorious moment. But God did it, right? I don't know. <laughs> nobody, 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 nobody thinks in terms of mercy in that moment. Or, or maybe when you're in the grocery store, you've just gotten off of work, and you know, man, I need milk, eggs, and something else, and I'm going to go to H-E-B and get it, and I can get in and get out because they have the express lane. God bless the express lane, right? 
And you get in the express lane and there's a, a person in front of you who clearly has 15, more than 15 items in their buggy, right? Because that's the limit, 15 items. And so you're thinking, man, I hope somebody busts this guy. I hope somebody comes, comes around and says, hey, this is not the right lane for you. This is for the people who have 15 items or less. And really, if we were honest, we would probably say, I'd love for that person to be humiliated right there, to get all those groceries out and to get up to the cashier. And then the cashier says, sorry, I can't help you. You're in the wrong line. They have to put them all back. No, but I guess that's just me that thinks like that then, right? You all are better than me. It's love mercy. What about, I don't know, maybe this has happened to you. I've been on the other end of this, but have you ever bought tickets to like a concert or something like that? And you get to your seats and there's someone in your seats, right? Does anyone think merciful thoughts about the people who are in the seats that you paid money for? No, what you're looking for is an usher, right? An usher to say, hey, look, this person has those seats, so you, you got to go. You have to find your seats. We don't think in terms of mercy uh, that often or that well. But, but I would say to you even this, that to, to love mercy sometimes almost seems like it works against the first thing that we said God desires of us, and that's to do what's right. I mean, think about it. Logically, If everyone did what was right, mercy wouldn't be necessary, right? If everyone was just doing the right thing, then there's no need for mercy. But I would say to you that's a dangerous thought because we are all in need of mercy at some point or another. And if not right now, it could be the next moment. It could be concerning the sin that we have all committed against our Heavenly Father. If mercy is unnecessary, then reconciliation also becomes unnecessary. And then we're right back to square one when it comes to how we have a relationship with God. It's only capable then by rituals and religion, by sacrifices. That would totally change the outlook of the church. Think about it like this. Uh, Every morning I get up, I have a routine that I go through. Um, Part of that routine is brushing my teeth. Anybody else have that as a routine? Thankfully, yes, uh, you should if you don't, but uh, I, that's part of my routine, uh, and so I, at some point in the routine, go in the bathroom, grab my toothbrush, and I brush my teeth, put it back in the drawer, and I leave, and I don't think about that toothbrush for the rest of the day. There's not a moment of joy there. There's not like this, uh, you know, peace at the soul level that's like, I've brushed my teeth today. I'm ready to face the world. It's just something I do because I'm supposed to right? Heaven forbid, church, that our relationship with Jesus ends up looking like our relationship with our toothbrush. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than that. Christ-like mercy, if we're to be like Jesus, there are some demands that it places on us. And you only have a few blanks on your notes today, but um, if you want to take some extra notes, there's plenty of space. I might encourage you to write this down. Two demands of mercy. If we are to be like Jesus, it means that we must rejoice in the willing repentance of a hardened heart because of a personal encounter with Jesus. Worded another way, when someone comes to faith in Christ, that's cause for us to celebrate. That means that person who uh, was uh, before their their belief, before they have realized or before they have come to have this experience with Jesus was essentially dead in their sin, but now because of their faith in Christ, they are made alive. Death to life, 
That's something that is always celebrated in Scripture. And if we are to embody the mercy that God requires of us, we too must also celebrate that. We can't look at the person that comes to Christ and say, I know how big a rascal that guy used to be. It doesn't work like that anymore. When someone comes to Christ, that's cause for us to rejoice because they have, an, they have too had an encounter with Jesus. But secondly, there's another demand for mercy is that we invite, I'm going to use this term, but stay with me for a minute, that we invite undeserving people into places of honor in our lives. Now, I don't want the term undeserving to sound negative to you, but essentially, I, I couldn't come up with another one. Essentially, what I'm trying to say to you this morning is God desires that we bring people into our life and we bestow upon them honors and blessings that they cannot repay. Does that make sense? That, in that sense, undeserving. And if we're to love and if we're to be a people that is merciful as Jesus has instructed us, we must also do that. Uh, flip back to Luke chapter 14. I want to look at another part of the story that we started on a few minutes ago. Luke chapter 14, verse 12. Let's see if we can underscore um, and support this idea of what it means to love mercy. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner... Do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbor. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Essentially, what we're seeing here this morning, as Jesus teaches uh, that's what mercy means. Uh, you know, we, we think about mercy a lot of times in terms of what we don't get, like a punishment that we, uh, you know, if you've ever had a ticket, you got a ticket, nobody's ever gotten a ticket, just me, I've gotten tickets, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, you, you get a, you know, speeding ticket, and I had an experience one time where I called the judge to take care of it, and he just, he just asked me, he said, did you do it? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, okay, I'm going to just write it off, because I confessed, because I agreed with him that I was wrong. He wiped the ticket. He extended mercy to me. Uh, I would hope that we would all have experiences like that or not get tickets, right? I mean, that would be a good thing too. Um, uh, so uh, th- there's this idea that we have to, that, that because Jesus has taught us this morning uh, to, to bring people into our lives and bestow upon them and put them in places of honor, they can't repay. That's what it means to show mercy to a person. It, it, it may have to do with doing what is right, but mercy goes further than that even. So I would say to you this morning, church family, are you, are you, are you content? Are you determined? Are you resolved to love mercy, to, to be that person of mercy? And I, I'll be honest with you, this is difficult for me. I'm not a mercy guy. Uh, I'm kind of a, you, you know, you get what you get type guy. But the, the, the demands of Christ and being a disciple, a follower of Jesus means that I need to be open to change, be open to him molding me in a different direction. I'm not always good at it. So, uh, again, I want to give you three things real quick before we move on. Uh, some ideas that may help you learn to love mercy, okay? It's three ideas to help you learn to love mercy. Number one, bring merciful people into your life. If you struggle with mercy, 
get around people who are good at mercy. Does that make sense? As you rub shoulders with them and you begin to love them, you also start to love what they love. That's, that's how it happens. You, you love the things that the people in your life love. And so I'll give you an example. When my wife and I got married, I, I've always been a huge baseball fan. Her, not so much. It's, I, I don't know what she would, how she would describe the experience, but uh, this just wasn't her thing. We got to go on a vacation back in uh, April, well, early May, actually, to California for a few days for our 15th wedding anniversary. We hit two, two baseball games that week. She didn't go because she loved baseball. She went because she loved me. Does that make sense? When you invite merciful people into your life, they'll rub off on you. And God will use the, those people to um, boost your mercy, so to speak. Uh, and it will be beneficial to the kingdom. So bring merciful people into your life. Number two, tell your own story of mercy as often as you can. It's really hard to be unmerciful when you are telling a story about how someone, God specifically, has shown you mercy. Tell your story of mercy. Tell people about the person you once were without shame, without hindrance. And then tell them how when you came to Christ, all of that changed. Maybe not in a moment, but through a series or through seasons, how your encounter with Christ led you to think differently about the life that you led before you knew Christ. Tell your own story of mercy. And number three, pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal uh, opportunities for you to show mercy. Pray for the, uh, the Holy Spirit to reveal to you opportunities to show mercy. Here's what I know about mercy. Because I'm not good at it, it always surprises me. Always surprises me. It, it, for me, it's like a hot heat on the back of my neck when I feel like I should do but I don't want to do because I'm surprised and uh, I'm not prepared. And so uh, I've just found that if I pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal opportunities to show mercy, when those opportunities come, I'm not as surprised. I'm more ready to be like Jesus in those moments. Does that make sense to you? Think of it like this. I don't know that many of us carry change anymore, like coins in your pocket, but uh, I like to think of it like this. This is a coin that you should never be without. Each coin has a head side and a tail side, correct? Right? You guys remember coins, right? Okay, I'm just wondering. Each side has a head side and a tail side. And you can't separate the head from the tail side. They are inseparable. They go together all the time. I think about grace and mercy just like that coin. Grace and mercy go together all the time. If we're to be a people of grace, we must also be a people of mercy. And so mercy is, or excuse me, grace is one side of the coin, and it just means that you get what you don't deserve. We love grace because that's us getting, right? You, you don't deserve it, but you get it. That's grace. Mercy is the flip side of the coin, but equally as important. It's when you know that you have not gotten what you did deserve. It's when you do not get what you do deserve. You follow that? I would encourage you this morning, church family, to carry that coin with you. Always. It's a hallmark of God's people. Lastly, We've seen this morning answering the question, what does God require? That he wants us to do what is right. He wants us to love mercy. But lastly, he wants us to walk humbly with Jesus. Back in our passages there in Micah chapter 6. And what does the Lord require of you? That's you, that's me, that's all of us. That's, uh, that, that's indicative of God's people. What does the Lord require to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly 
with your God. Micah mentions this, walking humbly, walking with a, through this life, through these days, with every breath, with every heartbeat that God gives us. He, he mentions this uh, walking with humility as something that Israel could not do. They could not remember that God had blessed them as a nation, that literally had grown them up from nothing. They could not remember, or they could not remember consistently even, that God had uh, provided for them over and over and over again. And I'm, I'm not just talking about places to live, but I'm talking about food falling from heaven, manna, bread, uh, and provisions of water as they were making their journey to the, the promised land. God did that. He provided that for them. So many blessings. In fact, if you look back in the verses that we read, God listed some of those blessings that brought you out of Egypt. You were no longer a slave because of me. I redeemed you from that land. I sent Moses and Aaron and other people to lead you to this promised land. And this land is your home. You get to inhabit it and grow in it. And this is your place. This is your country. And so uh, really what I think God is teaching here is that if we're going to walk humbly with Jesus, it's a matter of us daily uh, living in the recognition of the awe and majesty and the authority of Jesus' name. That's something that, that, that Israel couldn't do. Really what we're talking about this morning is living under the recognition of the two distinct roles at play here in the relationship between God and man. So follow me for a minute. We have this, uh, this opportunity to commune, to have a relationship with God through faith in Christ. And God is clearly not here. I mean, he's here, he's present in us, and the Spirit tells us that. But Scripture tells us that God dwells in heaven. And so God is there. Uh, he is holy. Remember, perfect he is creator. We believe as, as a church that scripture teaches us that God spoke creation into being and it, it, it happened. Um, he, he did that. Uh, he's revealer. He has revealed himself to us no longer as the God of heaven, but the son of man, Jesus Christ himself. Uh, he's the reconciler. Uh, these are all things that God alone can do. And then you and I are over here and there's this gap between God and man uh, and we also have a role in the relationship, but the role is much different from God's role. God does the things that we mentioned. He's holy, he's creator, he's revealer, reconciler, if you want to use that term uh, when you talk about salvation. And we're over here, and on our best days, I believe we fall somewhere between servant and steward. Servant and steward, right? So on my best day, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. My life is lived for his glory. But on my worst days, I'm a steward of all that he's given me. Does that make sense? We cannot do what God can do. But we fall in that gap, someplace between servant and steward. And if we keep that mindset out in front of us, then all of a sudden it's real easy to walk in humility day by day. We know not holy, but because of Jesus, we're acceptable. We know, I'm, I'm not creator, God. You're, you're doing things and moving in ways that, you know, you're, you're doing things in people's lives that I can't do, that I can't orchestrate. We, we know that, that God is the one who orchestrated and, and initiated reconciliation through faith in Christ. We give him honor and glory for that. Luke 51, verses 16 and 17 tells us this, that a broken heart and a contrite spirit is something that God will never deny. He will never reject the person who uh, walks in humility. 
And so I would say to you, church family, that it should be pretty clear today what God requires of us. I was listening to a podcast this morning from a pastor in Los Angeles who was teaching on the verses from uh, Luke 14, and he said this concerning, oh, we need to go and read that, actually. Let's, let's go there first, and then I'll make my observation. So Luke 14, flip back over there with me uh, for just a second, and I'll, I'll make it brief, I promise. Luke 14, starting in verse 7. Remember, Jesus is still at the party. He's made a couple of observations so far about... Um, about the, the, the inability or the, I don't know what word to use, but the Pharisees' lack of action concerning this man that needed to be healed. Uh, he's made another observation toward the end of uh, this first section about um, in, inviting people into your life on whom you can bestow mercy. In the middle, though, starting in verse 7, he reinforces this idea of what it means to walk humbly with Jesus. So let's look at this. Starting in verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the the least important place. But when you are invited, uh, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Clearly, Jesus uses this opportunity to say, uh, maybe you've seen it at, at parties when, you know, place cards are good, but if there's no place card... People just kind of do their own thing. And so he says, if you go to a party, don't exalt yourself to the most important seat because the host of the party may have invited someone who really is more important than you. And that's okay. But if you're in that guy's seat, the host of the party is going to come and say, I'm sorry, that seat's not for you. There's someone here who is more important. And so at that point, humiliated, you have to go find another seat. And if everybody else is already seated, what's left? the least honorable seat down at the very end of the table. But instead, Jesus teaches in the vein of humility, when you go to a party, to a gathering, when you have a relationship, whatever it might be, you, you assume the place of the, the, the least honored person. And then the host comes in and he says, why are you sitting way down there? You need to be up closer to me. This is my party. I'm bringing it. I'm bringing you up. And he honors you in front of all of the guests, I would say to you again this morning, church family, um, God desires that we walk in humility, we walk, that we walk in humility daily with Jesus. So the, the pastor I told you about, he said this concerning this passage, if you're always trying to get the honor, a lot of doors are going to close to you. Have you seen powerful people in a room jockey for position? And this guy's trying to get the honor over this one, and this one's trying to trump this one, and basically nobody wants to listen, right? Nobody wants to be around those type of people. And so I would say to us this morning, church family, if you're always trying to get the honor, a lot of doors are going to close to you. But he also said this, if you choose humility, or excuse me, if you don't choose humility, humiliation will choose you without warning. Is that, you follow that? If you don't choose humility, if you don't choose the place of servant, then humiliation will choose you when you least expect it. Anybody love to be humiliated? (laughs) Anybody? Nobody? No takers on that? Come on. 
I hate being humiliated, but it happens, right? It happens. It doesn't mean I look forward to it. So what can I do about that? I can assume the place of a servant. Our Heavenly Father has commuted three things to us this morning as charges against his own people, Israel, things that they could not do. So I would say to us today, church family, on this side of history, we have an opportunity to learn from the example of Israel uh, dictated to us or uh, spoken to us through the prophet Micah. And it's very clearly the answer to the question, what does God desire? What pleases God? What does he want us to do? He wants us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with Jesus daily. Can you follow that? Let's pray together.